Hello again, and welcome to Spain to Go, the best podcast in the entire multiverse about all things Spain. As usual, I am your host, Daniel Welsh, and I am here in beautiful Barcelona, recording this on a rainy Wednesday. I am going to talk about cultural differences between Spain and the U.S. today, and there's a good reason for this. I am actually going to visit the U.S. pretty soon, and for a variety of reasons, which I might get into in a future episode, it's actually been 17 years since I last went to the U.S., so I am expecting to have a pretty serious case of reverse culture shock in just about 10 days here, and I would, um, I would expect that I'll be able to get an article or an episode of the podcast out of the reverse culture shock. Today, I want to talk about the normal culture shock, the things that I learned about American culture from moving to Spain all those years ago. So let's get right to it. First thing is that I am from, as you may know, Arizona, one of those, you know, highly Republican states, at least back then it was. Now I think it's gone a bit more Democrat. But when I was growing up, there was a whole lot of Republican types who might be carrying guns around in their pickup truck and on their way to the evangelical church. We were quite literally in the middle of the desert, so there wasn't a whole lot of human contact except for, um, you know, traffic. You would see more traffic than you would people most of the time. And, you know, these were good American patriots who wanted to bomb the living hell out of whoever it was we were bombing in those days. You know, I think probably Iraq or Afghanistan at that point. And uh, everybody was pretty sure that America was the greatest country on earth. And so I kind of grew up without any other information. We learned mostly about U.S. history. We did not learn very much about other countries. The existence of Spain was barely even on my radar for most of my life, in other words. And if we did learn about other countries, we learned about how the people in those other countries were basically sitting around in abject poverty somewhere, yearning to move to the U.S., I'm not saying that this is true. I'm saying that it was the larger cultural idea that I was exposed to when I was growing up back in Arizona. Of course, things might have changed now, and you could also argue that my personal experience is not all that representative. But I will respond by saying that somebody who grew up in New York has an experience that is not at all representative of the rest of the U.S. because 98% of people in the U.S. do not live in New York. So, you know, I have no idea how representative all of this is, but it is my experience. And if you're listening to this, you just might be interested in my experience and opinions. So the first thing that I should mention about cultural differences between Spain and the U.S., is that Americans work 
too hard. You might know this already. It is a pretty big stereotype. I figured this out when on one of my first days in Madrid, a European friend took me to Retiro Park, Parque Retiro in Madrid. And we went to the park and she said, okay, let's sit on the grass. And she sat down on the grass, took off her shoes and basically did nothing for about four hours. Actually, you know, when I say she basically did nothing, what she did was she sat there and she rolled a few cigarettes and she smoked those cigarettes very slowly over the course of four hours. I was not expecting this, and I had actually never attempted to sit and do nothing in more than 20 years of life up to that point, but it got to be something I uh, did regularly afterwards, and I realized that in the U.S., just sitting and doing nothing was possibly not a uh, valued social skill. Here, it's much more common. When I started working as an English teacher a little bit later on, I was soon shocked by the number of holidays that are being celebrated. There's a holiday on December 6th, and there's another holiday on December 8th. There's a two-week period from Christmas Eve until Epiphany on January 6th, when you don't work if you're an English teacher. There's holidays for all the major events of the life of Christ or the Virgin Mary. There are a few public holidays which are about, you know, important Spanish events. October 12th for, for Columbus Day, quote-unquote, although they don't call it that over here. There were plenty of holidays, and I was not used to this at all because in the U.S. we have, you know, five or six maybe throughout the year. Here it's about double that. However, I'm not saying that Spanish people don't work hard. I'm just saying that Spanish people are good at relaxing when they're not working hard. A lot of people here in Spain work long hours. There is kind of a culture. They call it the cultura del presentismo, which I guess we could say is the culture of showing up, the culture of being present. And what that basically means, there are articles about it in, you know, Spanish newspapers from time to time. What it means is that your boss wants to see you at your desk for a long period of time. Whether or not you get anything done is less relevant than how long you're, you know, the long hours that you're putting in. Spanish people hate this, but it is the only way in a lot of companies that they can advance if they're seen to be working long hours, and uh, it's just one of those cultural things. So, once again, I'm not saying that Spanish people don't work hard. I'm just saying that they also know how to relax. Here's another one. Because of American culture, we're all secretly Puritans. Puritans, I guess, is something that I use to mean people who are very serious, don't like having fun, you know, offended by nudity. We might not dress like the pilgrims in an elementary school Thanksgiving reenactment, but we Americans definitely are Puritans. I remember watching Spanish TV years ago and noticing that they have women's nipples in advertisements from time to time. Now I don't have a TV anymore, so I'm not sure what the status of women's nipples in advertising is, but I have seen it on Spanish TV. 
I also remember going to a photo exhibition that was entirely pictures of butts. I don't remember if there were male and female butts or just female butts, but it was called like culos, la exposición, you know, the butt exhibition. So I remember going with my friend and there were families with their kids all looking at all of these butts. And I was thinking this would be a whole social scandal. You could probably be put in jail for showing your kids too many pictures of butts, you know, your, your eight-year-old kid in the U.S. Here, doesn't seem to matter. People are not super worried about it. The level of profanity that is socially acceptable in, you know, normal Spanish conversations is also higher than what you would hear in the U.S. You might be able to get away with calling your boss un hijo de puta here if you do it, you know, in a friendly way, which you probably wouldn't want to do in the U.S., and the level of sexy talk on TV is also a bit more extreme. If people, you know, characters on our sitcom are talking about their sex lives, they might do it in a way that would uh, offend your average Bible-thumping person in the U.S. Another aspect of this is drinking culture. Drinking is not really stigmatized in Spain, you just go to a bar for fun, to meet your friends. You just can hang around in bars all day and nobody will think much of it. The thing is, Spanish drinking culture tends to be a little bit different in the sense that you're not trying to get absolutely wasted and, you know, to the point where you're doing stupid things. That's what British tourists do and the Spanish do not like it. Here in Spain, you might, you know, have one or two drinks and move on to another place and, you know, drink slowly throughout the afternoon or evening, but you're not trying to get hammered, essentially. So it is a different sort of alcohol culture, let's say. Another thing that I would like to talk about are the lifestyle expectations that Spanish people have versus the lifestyle expectations that people in the U.S. might have. This could have changed over the last almost 20 years. We will find out very soon. But the American dream versus the Spanish dream. I've heard stories from, you know, guys who get divorced and they're telling the story of how they moved into a 1,100 square foot apartment by the side of a highway. And, you know, it was either that or, or live in their car. 1,100 square foot apartment by the side of the highway being their version of rock bottom. And I would just like to tell you that here in Spain, I can't even... Here in Spain, 1,100 square feet would be an absolute luxury. I'm living in 700 square feet here with my girlfriend, and it's great. I think I am doing very well for myself in my 700 square foot apartment in Barcelona. You know, by the side of the highway. I'm in a big city. There's probably, you know, there's definitely highways going nearby. So the lifestyle expectations here are a bit lower. If you're imagining, you know, 
the American dream, well, what I'm imagining the American dream, I'm imagining a giant house in the suburbs with a pool, all of that. And of course, there are people who have that here, but you would have to have a couple million bucks to spend at least if you're going to do anything like that. It seems like it's much more achievable over in the U.S. Another thing, and it's one that I mentioned in the previous episode about why don't you just integrate into Spanish society, this one is we're terrified of physical contact over in the U.S. My boss for the longest time was this guy who would wear brown suits with a brown tie I always suspected that he was drunk for most of the day, but I heard later on that he had stopped drinking years before, and so maybe he wasn't. He just seemed like maybe that kind of guy who had a bottle of whiskey in a desk drawer for daytime emergencies. On weekends, he used to go back to his hometown, which was a population 12 out in Guadalajara, and he would tend to his sheep. When we had the big economic crisis, in 2009 to whenever that ended, he said at one point, well, if the language school doesn't work out, I'll just go back and tend to my sheep. The sheep are not in crisis and I'll be fine, which I thought was pretty cool. But the thing that most of the new recruits at this language school noticed was that he would just put his hands all over you when talking. I'm sure my female coworkers did not feel great about this. It was mentioned by multiple female coworkers in the break room that he would just be talking. He would stand very close. He would put his hand on your back and uh, have a conversation. You might be able to f get someone fired for this in the U.S. Where I was living in Arizona, our personal distance was about two meters. If you could reach your arm out and even touch the other person, you would feel uncomfortable and you'd want to take a step back. You know, most of the times when you see someone you know, your polite greeting is to just wave and uh, smile and say hi, but you might not even shake people's hands. I learned about shaking people's hands all the time when I went off to university and started meeting a lot of people from the East Coast. Anyway, the personal distance thing is pretty interesting. This boss that I'm mentioning, you know, he did this to everybody, uh, male and female, and it wasn't creepy or sexual harassy at all. It was just his normal way of being. When I would come back from Christmas break, he would rub my belly and tell me how fat I was getting. For example, I'm guessing I could have a whole HR crisis in the U.S. if I were to uh, mentioned that the boss was rubbing my belly and calling me fat, but uh, it just seemed pretty normal for this guy because everybody else is doing it too. Maybe not on that level, but it's not weird. The level of personal space that people expect tends to be defined by culture, and this whole COVID-19 pandemic has definitely affected how people greet each other and how much people are willing to get into each other's personal space. We'll see how this plays out in the next couple of years, but I'm definitely not giving people a lot of kisses on the cheeks like I used to. That was the typical greeting, kiss on either cheek um, for women and for 
a lot of people, generally. There used to be the whole fun situation where two Americans meet, but they're Americans who live in Spain, and they kind of walk around each other for a minute, deciding if they should go in for the kiss on the cheek, or if they should shake hands, or hug, or what kind of greeting would be the most acceptable. We will see, like I said, how the COVID situation continues affecting people's issues of personal space. It's not quite clear if we're going back to normal on that too. My final point today is about food culture. In the U.S., we do have some food culture, but we have a lot of marketing also, and people do things that over here would seem a little bit weird. The timing of meals is obviously different. I used to have a flatmate who would come home and see me eating dinner at 6 p.m., and he would be very confused about what I was doing. If I was having a late lunch, or if I was having a mid-afternoon snack, or a very early dinner. This was when I was first, first here in 2004-2005. I since got onto a more Spanish schedule, but I tend to eat around 8 p.m. or 8.30, where I can be the first person walking into the restaurant when others come in at 9.30 or 10. Another thing about food culture is that Americans tend not to have a very clear definition of what is artificially processed non-foods and what is, you know, real natural food. We just think that your steak kind of grows under plastic. You might, if you've been living in the U.S. your whole life, you might never have seen somebody butchering a cow. But here you can go to the market and you can see the guy, you know, bringing in a half cow to the butcher and the butcher will, you know, take it and cut it up into its component parts right in front of you. It's a little bit disturbing if you're not used to it, but that is technically where meat comes from. Spain has spent less time as an industrialized country, so they're very close to the sort of country lifestyle, well, not very, but closer to the country lifestyle. A lot of people have a pueblo that they go to on the weekends or in the summers, and a lot of people have a grandfather who grows grapes or a grandfather who has a farm and, you know, makes his own cheese or something like that. These are fairly common, so people have a knowledge of what goes on in the country that maybe people in the U.S. often don't have, especially people in the bigger cities. You know, once again, in Arizona, we were in the desert. We didn't have a lot of agriculture around because the desert. The state of Arizona, of course, has some agriculture. We have a lot of oranges, a lot of cotton, things like that. But it wasn't really in my area, so I didn't see it. Your experience may vary. So I guess the big question you are possibly contemplating is which do I think is better, Spain or the US? Well, it's really hard for me to say, and of course everybody is entitled to their own opinion. Everybody has strong feelings about this, and mostly people just feel like whatever they grew up with was better.
I'm actually overall much happier living in Spain than I was in the U.S. I might get into some of the specific reasons for this in a future episode. But it's also very interesting that the longer I live in Spain, the more American I feel, the more I want to celebrate the 4th of July, even if it's just with some Budweiser and some hot dogs. I really want to do it these days. If I don't, I feel like I'm betraying my culture somehow, where if I was in the U.S., I might completely ignore the 4th of July. I've started listening to country music recently, a little bit, but it's something I would not have done if I were to still be living in the U.S. On the other hand, I don't actually want to go back to live in the U.S. A lot of things would have to change for that to seem like a good idea. I'm happy with keeping the American way of life at a distance. But, like I said, I'll be going there soon. So I guess prepare yourself for some reverse culture shock in a future episode of this podcast. I'm a bit worried about the whole thing, but we will see what happens. I'm sure in 17 years a lot has changed, I've changed, and I'm sure the whole country back there has changed. So that's the next episode. Please subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Feel free to leave me a rating on iTunes or on Spotify. It does help to have a bit more visibility. Please uh, donate if you would like. I have a donate link in the description to this podcast, and you can buy me a cup of coffee, a virtual cup of coffee, or you could buy me a hundred virtual cups of coffee if you would like, or, you know, a beer, whatever works. Just go to expatmadrid.com slash donate. It will take you to the donations page, and you can choose an amount. You know, I do this for free, and it does take some time, but I enjoy it. I would love to keep bringing these episodes to you for as long as possible. While you're over at expatmadrid.com, you should also drop me a line. Let me know what you would like to hear about in future episodes. If it's something that I think I can put together, I'll give it my best shot. I do love to hear from my listeners here. Anyway, that's about it. Thank you very much for listening up to here, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.